going to be talking about is what's part of this book that's literally being printed at the moment, and that's why this is a demo cover, it's all like that. But I hope to get stock here towards the end of this week because I'm doing an event in Durban on Friday and Saturday. And this is more how you move in the kingdom into the ministry of the power of the kingdom. So it deals with the commission of Jesus that we should announce and demonstrate the kingdom as he did, and therefore heal the sick and drive out demons, etc. And then it deals with, well, how do we get to do that? And there's a section on identity. Uh, we'll never really go and do great exploits for God unless we're strong in our identity in Christ. So there's a section on that. Then there's a section on the Pentecostal empowering of the Spirit. We're never going to do these things unless we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it goes into the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and then particularly the gifts that empower power evangelism. Prophetic gifts, prophetic evangelism, healing gifts, and deliverance and exorcism. And then it ends with how do we welcome the Holy Spirit in, into our services. So this would be more of a practical theology book. And then in the, third, in the second part of this evening, I'm going to be doing stuff that's going to come out of a book that will be published sometime during this year. And that's on uh, what I'm calling the Kingdom Reformation. So for this evening, if I could give a comparison, when you teach, you think about, am I going to be feeding diker or bushbuck or giraffe? And feeding diker is really simple stuff beneath all you clever guys. Feeding bushbuck is like normal church audience. And you can imagine feeding giraffe is like, quite theological. So the first part of this evening is going to be feeding bushbuck, right? You'll find it quite accessible. It's the story of the kingdom. The second half, I'm going to be feeding giraffe. And some of it, you'll just think, what in the hang is this guy talking about? But I'm hoping at the end, you will have a picture that will make you realize this is worthy of me going on a journey to read and study and equip myself and maybe to realize how radically significant kingdom, the kingdom of God is in what's happening in global Christianity. So some of it will be a little bit um, obtuse, but um, looking at you, such intelligent faces, I'm sure it's going to be okay. And will we have like a get up and walk around break and coffee, drugs, whatever? Okay. All right, so welcome here, and let me tell you, um, this is my passion. I've been writing and preaching and teaching on the kingdom for the last, like, 30 years all over the world. It's just consumed me. So I'm going to enjoy myself, whether you do or don't, because I love this subject. It is my absolute passion, and it's my absolute passion because it's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And the journey for me in the last... 10, 15 years of discovering Jesus in a new way has been just consuming me in a, you know, just feeds my soul. All right, okay. So what is the kingdom of God? And the first thing we need to notice is that if you read particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this was on the mouth of Jesus continually. He 
basically never spoke about anything else. So just to give you a few references, after John was put in prison, he went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So his opening proclamation was to announce the kingdom of God. Then Matthew tells us he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So notice, obviously, it was a teaching that produced results. So he taught about it, and then he demonstrated it, and he went wherever he went, this is what he was doing. Then often people say the Beatitudes in his teaching are like the summary of, of all of his teaching, and there in the middle of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then when he gave the commission to the 12, he was very specific. As you go, preach this message. Not any old message you've dreamed up, but a very specific message. The kingdom of heaven is near. And then it goes on how they had to demonstrate it. Then he taught a lot of parables. And all the parables are explaining the kingdom of God. So the parable of the, of the sower and the seed, it starts like this. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And then the parable follows. And all the parables are explaining the kingdom of God. So there's no doubt about it, this was the primary mission and message of Jesus. But he never gave us a definition saying this is what it is. In fact, a lot of his teaching, as we'll hear tonight, is, is quite mysterious. But the nearest we get to a definition is the prayer he taught us to pray. Pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in Hebrew um, poetry and proverbs, you often have two lines, and the second line is an explanation of the first line. So what is it for the kingdom of God to come? It is when the will of God is executed on earth as it is in heaven. And this is not something that is always present, because Jesus says, pray, O Father, let your kingdom come. So the kingdom is an event that occurs when in answer to prayer or in God's sovereign action, he intervenes in the, humanity, in the world of humanity and he executes his will on earth as it is in heaven. He brings his executive government to apply on earth as it is in heaven. So, a lot of people think about, is the kingdom of God about the eternal sovereignty of God, that he rules the universe forever and he's always on his throne? Well, that's true, but that's not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about a moment that if they prayed, God would show up and he would start executing his will on earth as it is in heaven. And he talked about this in a very clear time dimension. He said... The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, what was he talking about? And we're living 2,000 years later, we may not understand what his audience understood when he said, the time is fulfilled. But he wasn't speaking into a vacuum. He was speaking into a people that had high hopes and expectations of this great moment when the kingdom of God would come. 
And so in saying that, he is really referencing the whole history of Israel's expectation of the Messianic age or the day that the kingdom would come. And he's basically announcing what you've been spending hundreds of years waiting and longing and praying for. I'm announcing, here it is. So there's something quite um, dramatic about this announcement that Jesus makes about the kingdom of God. So for us to understand the context of what Jesus meant, we need to actually reconstruct that growing expectation in the story of Israel. And one can spend a lot of time doing this, but basically I find it easy to talk about three growing windows. In the Old Testament, the story of the kingdom grows exponentially. A little bit like computer windows, bigger and bigger screen, all right? And the first one is the Exodus event. Because the first place in scripture where the rule of God is referred to is in Exodus where it says Yahweh will reign forever and ever. And that was the climax of a narrative where they were in bondage and slavery. They cried out to God and God came to speak to Moses, remember, in the burning bush. And he says, I have heard your cry and I am about to come down. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm about to execute my government. And he reveals his divine name, Yahweh, which really means the one who becomes present. It's a whole long story, but that's what it means. So he's revealing that his very nature is to intervene in human history where there is bondage and misery and liberate people. And then there's the story of the plagues. And if you study the ancient Near Eastern background, you realize that each plague was linked to one of the gods of Egypt. The Nile god, Harpy, got struck. And, the, you know, the Amon, the, the, when the livestock was, was struck, the, the, the ram god was struck, etc., etc. Of course, the head of the pantheon was Pharaoh's son, who was believed to be conceived by divinity. And he was the... So there was a whole pantheon of gods. And with every plague, Yahweh took down one of the gods of Egypt. And then in the last plague, he says, on this night, I will execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am who I am. And he did that because Pharaoh's son died and you know the whole Exodus event happened. And so the Israelites escape across the sea and they land up singing this song of liberation, the song of Miriam and Moses. If you read it, it's full of a praise to the great deeds of Yahweh, how he came as a mighty warrior and he slew the armies of Pharaoh and he drowned them and he defeated their gods and he has liberated us and he is on our side and because he's on our side, we are victorious and they are destroyed and he is our king forever and ever. So the first idea of the coming of the kingdom is the clash of powers between the power of Yahweh and the powers of Egypt. And of course, it's symbolized by the snakes. Remember Pharaoh's snakes and Aaron's snake and Aaron's snake ate their snakes. Basically, God's power is going to eat your power. And they have this. So when they sing the song, they are saying, Yahweh has become our king by winning a battle, a spiritual battle and a military battle. 
He's come to be our savior and redeemer. And he is now our king and we are his vessel people. And the Sinai covenant is based on the structure of what is called a suzerainty treaty between a conquering king and a vassal state. And the whole covenant idea is the result of God's kingdom having come. Now, if you're thinking about rolling it forward to Jesus, didn't Jesus come also announcing the clash of powers? Wasn't there also a war between the powers of God and the powers of darkness? Didn't somebody win that war? You know? So the whole thing starts there. Then the next great window is the Davidic monarchy. And of course, they go through the wilderness under Joshua, they conquer, and uh, David eventually um, becomes the king of Israel. And what happens now is the way the kingdom of God comes is slightly shifted. David is anointed, and the word anointing is the word Mashiach, or the word Messiah. He is the messianic anointed one. He is adopted to be God's son, and God's spirit comes on David with power, and there's the statement that God gave David victory wherever he went, and he fought all the battles, and he, you know, he destroyed all the ites, the Amalekites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Amalekites and all of those, until David reigned over all Israel, and God gave him shalom on every side. And then under Solomon, there's this golden era where for a generation, God rules a nation through his anointed representative king, the son of David. And they had prosperity, they had peace, they had worship, they, they were the most powerful nation in the Middle East, um, and the key word used to describe that is shalom. Shalom is the good life. Every man living under his own vine and own fig tree, and everybody at peace with his neighbor, and God is governing a country. And that picture of the golden age was etched into Israel's memory from then on. For them, kingdom of God meant the messianic shalom, the messianic banquet, the prosperity of the rule of God under David and Solomon. But of course, they blew it. And the next generation, the next generation, they started worshiping other gods. And so God took away the kingdom from them and sent them into exile and in the dark night of exile, the prophets of Israel started to hear a new word from God. That God will bring back his government. His kingdom will come again. And the way it will come will totally eclipse the coming of the kingdom in the Exodus and the Davidic monarchy. It's like you ain't seen nothing yet. That was just a small replica. And their, their, their prophetic words were basically saying that the next time God's kingdom comes, it will be a coming of God that will end history as we know it. And a new world will be born where God renews all of creation and sets everybody free and heals everybody that's sick and raises everybody that is dead. It's a, it's a grand, massive picture of the end of this world and the beginning of a new world. And the prophet that particularly describes this is Isaiah, who influenced Jesus the most. And I've got a whole appendix in that book where I just quote nothing but text out of Isaiah, showing this grand picture of the coming kingdom. And so really this prophetic promise of the kingdom is that a new world is coming that's going to replace this world we live in now. 
Humanity is going to be liberated. The blind will see. The deaf will hear. The lame will walk. The prisoners will be set free. Creation will be restored. Won't, there won't just be a new heaven, but a new earth. You know, ecology restored. And everything that has gone wrong with God's creation will be put right in a final and decisive way. And you read those prophets and you see Israel's expectation is at this high point. And then what happens is for roughly 500 years, nothing happens. Zut. In fact, God even stops talking to them. So they only have the scriptures. They no, have, no longer have prophets. And they get ruled by the Greeks and the Romans and they suffer occupation and they go into poverty and they have priests that are corrupted by the Romans. And it's just a dark night. But the longing of this great expectation is there in the soul of many common Israelites. And then suddenly you open the Gospels and the birth narratives of John and Jesus. All sorts of prophetic events are happening. And then dramatically, you find the arrival of John the Baptist. And after 500 years of God doing nothing, the authentic voice of a prophet is heard in the land. And he says, what you've been longing for is very near. He doesn't actually say it's here. He says it's very near. And he says, if you will repent, you will get ready. And then Jesus arrives and he points to Jesus. And so it's difficult to explain the sheer drama of the opening of the New Testament when you realize the story that has gone before it. And then with the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, it's as though nothing has happened for 500 years and everything happens on one day. And particularly in Mark's gospel, you find the favorite key word in Mark's gospel, depending on your translation, is at once. He does this, and then at once he does that, and then at once that happened, and then at once that happened. And it's like you can hear an evangelist preaching. It's like a, a, an excited storyteller. And the key thing that is in the ministry of Jesus is his authority. And his authority is none other than the execution of the will of God on earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is demonstrating it. So there are three key ideas that we can hang our thoughts on. First of all is that all happens at once. So, you, you know, Jesus goes into a synagogue and he starts preaching. And they've never heard anything preaching with this authority. And then a demon manifests and he drives the demon out. He walks out of the synagogue and he goes to Simon's house and the mother is sick and he heals her. And the whole village hears about it and the whole village turns and they all turns up, they all get healed. Early the next morning, he says, I better go and preach this message to the whole of Israel. And he goes off and, and it's like, wow, action, 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 action. And what he does is he acts with authority. And he has authority in his teaching. Not like the Pharisees and the, and the rabbis who quote each other. Rabbi so-and-so quoting rabbi so -and -so. Jesus says, you have heard it was said through Moses. But I say to you, actually elevating his teaching above the teaching of Moses. He has authority in his summons. He calls Peter and John and James and all these guys and they just drop their businesses and leave everything to follow him. It's like they hear in his summons the very summons of God. He has authority over demons. And the rabbis had elaborate exorcism ceremonies taking hours. He would just say to a demon, go. And sometimes hundreds of them would just go. And that's in the synagogue. They say, what is this? With authority, he commands the demons. 
and they go. Authority over sin. And of course, this is what led to his crucifixion. Freaked out the theologians of the day. Famous message moment when the paralyzed man is let down through the roof. And Jesus says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Stand up and walk. And the guy stands up and walks. And so what the whole temple system offered of sacrifices and priests and the day of atonement, Jesus just short-circuits all of that and says, I am able to grant you the pardon that you need. And don't have time to explain, but this whole Son of Man reference, he's really talking about the one who's destined to be the judge of humanity at the end of history. And so he's saying to the paralyzed man, I am giving you your final destiny, forgiveness, now. That's the authority that I have. Then he had authority over death. He had this wonderful habit of wrecking funeral services. And, you know, the widow and the young boy, and they were all howling, and Jesus walks up to the funeral procession, just says, get up. And, of course, we know Lazarus was dead and very dead and smelly, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come out of that grave. And he has authority over death. He has authority over nature. So he speaks to this great storm, and he uses the kind of term you, you use to a dog that's jumping up, down, and the storm obeys. It's interesting, only then are the disciples sort of, they're so thick, they say, who are you? It's like, I thought you should have been asking that question, you know, for quite a while, but now suddenly, wow, this, see, because only actually God can command nature like that, see. And so, in the authority of Jesus, you see the kingdom of God being executed on earth. You see all the things Isaiah promised would come when the Messiah comes. Jesus is just ticking them off. He's doing them. And he is announcing that the future world, end of the age, coming of the kingdom is present. And he's not just announcing that it's present, he's demonstrating that it's present. However, a lot of the things they expected when the Messiah comes didn't happen. So they expected he would lead an army to overthrow the Roman occupation. He didn't seem to have any interest in that at all. And John the Baptist, who'd said, you are the, there's the man, is now in prison, about to have his head chopped off. And he sends messengers to Jesus and he says, are you the one? Has the kingdom come in you? I would also, if my head was about to be chopped off, think, something's missing here. And it's interesting, Jesus' reply, he says, go and tell John the Baptist what you see and hear. And he ticks off. The blind see, the deaf, no, I was going to say the deaf walk. <laughs> the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor is, have the good news preached. In other words, the inversion of injustice with justice that the prophets predicted is there in his ministry. He's basically saying, yes, the kingdom of God has come. And then he says this, but blessed are those who are not stumbled at me. As though he realizes that there is something mysterious about the way the kingdom of God has come in him. And so this leads to the third key word, which is the word mystery. The Hebrew word razim means the wise sayings of the wise thinkers and the philosophers. And so Jesus' parables were all wise sayings, wisdom teachings, explaining that actually the way the kingdom had come in him was mysterious. And so this leads us to look at the way Jesus taught about the kingdom. 
And what's going to happen now, hopefully, is you will become mystified. And then I hope to unmystify you. So if you look at all the teachings of Jesus, you can, you can reduce them to four different types of teaching. The first is that in his announcement of the kingdom, it is an event that is not present, but is future at the end of history. So if you look at the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24, where Jesus says, see this temple, not one stone will be left upon another. And they say, when will be the sign of this? And he gives a long progression. There will be wars and rumors of wars, then a long period of tribulation, and then after that, suddenly, like the lightning lights up the sky from east to west, the Son of Man will come, and he will sit on his throne, and he will judge humanity, some to eternal life and some to eternal death. The kingdom will come. And if you read the book of Revelation, there are all these series of seals and bowls leading up to the final climax. And so the kingdom of God and all of those sayings is not present now. It's down the corridors of history at the end of history where God will finally judge everything and change everything. And Jesus had a lot of sayings about that. But with equal clarity, a whole lot of sayings where he says, in his arrival and his ministry, the kingdom of God is present right now. So if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. See, I'm demonstrating its presence. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the kingdom of God has been preached, and it's forcefully advancing. So he's basically saying history can be divided into the age of expectation and the age of fulfillment, and the hinge, the turning point of history, has arrived as John the Baptist passed on the baton to Jesus. The age of the kingdom has arrived. And then we think, well, how do we nuance these two statements? And then it gets really more mysterious. He says, look, it's not actually here, but it's very near. So when he spoke in Mark 14, he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is near. To the 12, go and preach this message, the kingdom of God is near. And scholars go into all sorts of paroxysms about the Aramaic and the Hebrew and what it means, but Basically, that word conjures up the idea of a storm that is gathering, and you can hear the thunder, and you can even smell the rain, but it hasn't broken yet. Or a woman is in labor, and her you know, contractions are quite advanced, and the doctor says, go and tell the family, and you know, the baby's going to come in an hour's time, but the baby hasn't come yet. It's that penultimate moment. And so Jesus is saying, basically, History is pregnant with the any minute arrival of the kingdom, but it hasn't come yet. So he points to his young disciples and he says, some of you standing here will not die before you see the kingdom of God come in power. Not here yet, but it's going to come in your generation. That's how near it is. And then another whole lot of statements says, listen, don't be confused. It's been delayed. So the story of the wise and foolish virgins, you know, and they... Ran out of oil. Why? Because the bridegroom was delayed. And in the whole symbolism of Judaism, the coming of the bridegroom was the coming of the Messiah. It's a parable about the delay of the Messiah. Or the parable of the nobleman who gives talents to his servants, and he goes on a long journey, and after a long time, he comes back to see what they've done. And then Luke spells it out for us. He says, Jesus told that parable because some people assumed that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And the whole meaning of the parable is it's not going to appear at once. It's been delayed. So how on earth do we put all of those things together? See? 
And this is the mystery of the kingdom. Jesus' teaching of the kingdom was very nuanced, very, very multifaceted, very rich in its meaning. Now, the sentence I'm going to tell you now is really, if you, if you remember anything from tonight, this is the sentence. The mystery of the kingdom is in this, that it is always simultaneously present, near, delayed, and future. Now, in normal human experience and logic, something can't be both present and future at the same time, both near and delayed. But if you have a prophetic worldview, you realize many Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in that generation, but also spoke about the end. And one of the pictures that's helpful is when you're going hiking and there's a mountain range and you, you know, one mountain is behind the other, but they all look like one mountain range. And you get to the first peak and you say, we've made it. And then there's a long valley before the next one, and you start all over again. But from 20 miles away, it was like one mountain. And so the prophetic vision is able to hold all of those things together. Um, but we need to explain it a little bit more. So this graphic is one of the easiest ways to explain it in a pictorial way. In the biblical worldview, God deals with humanity from creation through redemptive history that goes forward in a linear progression to the final end, the day of judgment. And the word end is the Greek word eschatos, from which we get the word eschatology, the doctrine of the end times. Okay? And so the Old Testament prophets understood that, that one day God would finally intervene in history and fulfill all his promises, and then History would change and, and the whole world, the new heaven and the new earth would come about. And there would be a new age. This was their language, this age and the coming age. Where you have the description of the end scenes of the book of Revelation. God has changed everything. The kingdom, God is amongst his people. He has made all things new. The former things have passed away. Everything has become new. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And there's no more sickness, no more pain, no more death, no more evil, no more injustice because God is with his people and his people are with God and there's a new heaven and a new earth. See, that was their expectation. What they never could have conceived of was that somehow that future age could show up mysteriously and miraculously in the midst of this world, before the next world finally arrived. And so, look at the arrows. In the ministry and message of Jesus, announcing the kingdom, demonstrating the kingdom, preaching it, healing the sick, driving out demons, feeding the multitude, setting the captives free. In his crucifixion, in his resurrection, and in his ascension, which unleashed the power of the Spirit, that's the fire of Pentecost, the powers of the coming age broke into this present world from the future world. And Hebrews 6 actually talks about the coming of the kingdom using that phrase. Those who receive the, the Holy Spirit receive the powers of the coming age. And we as Christians live in a reality that nobody else lives in. Our pre-Christian friends don't live in this reality. We live in the midst of the times where for us, this world has not yet terminated, but the new world has already begun. 
And so if you believe in Jesus, you have already passed from death to life. If you believe in Jesus, you do not wait for the end of the world day of judgment. You have already received your judgment. And your case is closed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in all of these ways, we live in a, in a mysterious reality where we live in two dimensions at the same time. And the whole of the Christian life and the witness of the church in the world is lived in the overlap of these two ages. So theologians have tried to find language, slogans. And you must always be careful when you reduce a big thing into a slogan. But some of these slogans help us to sort of clarify our thoughts. And one of the guys that was a theologian in the United States, I'll talk about him a bit later, George Ladd, who influenced the whole of American evangelicalism. His book is called The Presence of the Future, which I think is a good title. And by the way, for those who live in the world of post-Einstein quantum physics and this theory of relativity, we should be the most comfortable with the notion that somehow the future world can suddenly arrive in the present world while this world is still here. See, Think of Jesus as invading us from the future through some vortex of God's power. Um, the already and the not yet is a popular phrase. So if you were to ask Jesus, is the kingdom of God here already? The answer is yes. Look at the demons go. Look at the sick being healed. And then if you would ask him, is the kingdom of God not yet here? Oh, no, it's not yet here. It's still, still coming. And the more theological phrase is enacted, inaugurated eschatology. Quick explanation. Eschatology, the doctrine of the last days or the future world. Inaugurated means Jesus began to inaugurate that future world now and announce that it was present. But he didn't just teach that as a theory. He enacted it in signs and wonders. So he enacted the intervention of the powers of the coming age or of eschatology into the present. Now, once you understand this model of the kingdom, this paradigm, it's like you get born again and again. For me, it was like that. I'd been a preacher for many years and then I discovered the kingdom. And it was like, where have you been, Morphew, you know? Thick as a plank. Reading the Gospels, not getting it. Suddenly, wow. It's like you get a new set of spectacles and everything about Jesus and everything in the New Testament suddenly fits into this paradigm. And the supreme moments of Jesus' life, his demonstration, proclamation and demonstration of the kingdom, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and, his, and the day of Pentecost, his ascension, are all... Powers of the coming age events. So this is a rich thing to go into if we had the time, but just very briefly. When Jesus was about to be crucified and the voice of the Father spoke, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And it says he spoke that about his crucifixion. And he said, I, when I am lifted up on the earth as the son of man, will draw all humanity into myself. So what happened is, yes, there will be a day of judgment that is to come. God sitting on his throne judging all of humanity. But that end of the world judgment has occurred in advance in Jesus. And all of humanity has to 
either show up for one day of judgment or the other day of judgment. And if you believe in Jesus and are in him, then when he died, you died. And when he was judged, your sin was judged. And if you have been to Jesus, dying on the cross and incorporated into him, you have had your day of judgment. In a good Afrikaans phrase, it is finished and clear. You've been found guilty, sentenced, given the death penalty, and then in his resurrection, you've popped up out of the grave, and you can never be judged again. That's pretty good news. So Jesus' understanding of the cross was it was an eschatological event. It was the end of the world. And that's why as he died, he said, it is finished. And, and the word means this is the end of history happening here. Then my favorite topic is the resurrection, the phenomenon of the risen body of Jesus. Because the older I get, the more I think about this. If you want to see what the future world looks like and what the coming kingdom is like, Look at the phenomenon of the risen body of Jesus. A body that could arrive in a, in a room with all the doors locked, could disappear out of their sight, could be in Emmaus and then suddenly back in Jerusalem, somehow no longer bound by space or time, but a body that could eat fish and make a bry face and be hugged, and, and he says, I have flesh and bones. Don't think that I'm a ghost. And so he had this kind of physical but spiritually transcendent new kind of body. And Paul says that body of Jesus is the replica of the body he's going to give us in the resurrection. When in a moment God's power will come upon me and every cell in my body will be transformed. And because that happened to Jesus roughly at the age of 30 or peak of life, it means that the bodies we will be given our lowly, lowly bodies will become like his glorious body, will be like we were at the peak of life, but transformed and then never perishing forever. And I always tell people, you should have seen me at the peak of life. <laughs> I grew up on Sinkwazi Beach. I was a surfer, a water skier, a sailor, a canoeist. You know, all these volley girls used to come down. And we were suntan. We used to rescue them from the rip current and stuff. I mean, I want that body back. And, and this is not science fiction. This is actually what happened in history. So the resurrection is actually the supreme window on the kingdom of God. And then, of course, Pentecost the power of God is falling on them. They're speaking in tongues. They're overwhelmed. They appear to be drunk. And they say, Peter, what is this? And Peter deliberately selects a text from Joel, which is about the end of the world. The sun and the moon being darkened. Uh, the cataclysm that is happening. The end of the world outpouring of the Spirit. And he's basically saying, what God will do to wind up history, that end of the world power of the Spirit has suddenly arrived in the present. So Pentecost is essentially a prophetic outpouring of the powers of the end of history. And when we are filled with the Spirit, we actually begin to taste. That's why in revivals, all sorts of strange phenomena happen. People fly through the air. People see visions and stuff. What's happening? They're getting a little shock, a little 12-volt precursor of the big zap they're going to get when their bodies are transformed and the world is renewed. And that's what Pentecost is. So all of the New Testament opens up. Now to close this first session, if you get this understanding of the kingdom and you start reading the New Testament, 
a whole lot of implications roll out. The first is that if the end, the final day of judgment, has broken into history in Jesus, and his authority is the authority of God ruling on earth as it is in heaven, then he is God with us. And so one of the whole themes is that the expectation that the temple would be refilled with the glory of God, Jesus references that, and he is the temple refilled with the glory of God. Also, if the last days began with Jesus and at Pentecost, it means ever since then we've been living in the last days, moving in the last days towards the last of the last days until we get to the last day. We're living in the end times, moving towards the end of the end times until we get to the very end. So all these schemes, dispensationalism, the divide up, oh, this was the age of the apostles, and this is the age of the church, and this can happen here, and it's all nonsense. From Jesus to the Second coming is one continuum of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So there's a whole lot of implications that follow. It means that the barrier between this world and the next world is now torn and is wide open. So as Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn between from the top to the bottom. And Hebrews theologizes that and he says that the inner court is when we see God face to face in the future world and the outer court is when we see God through symbols like bread and wine and stuff like that, this present age. But what happened when Jesus died? He tore the barrier between this world and the next world. Which means that the kingdom of God is the best basis for being open to the any minute arrival of God's power. Uh, so you can be in a meeting and you think we're just going to have a teaching and we're going to drink some coffee and go home and nothing much is going to happen here and then suddenly you enter into a new dimension. So a veil was opened and God shows up and literally anything is possible. So it's the kingdom of God understanding that opens us, us, us up to an expectation of the supernatural power of God at any minute. And it means that every aspect of the coming kingdom becomes potential. Because all that Isaiah prophesied, Jesus announced that he was doing it. So whether it's raising the dead, healing the sick, setting the captives free, feeding the, the, the poor, overcoming injustice, all of it can break into history whenever the kingdom comes. And that means that church history, the, the, the proper interpretation of church history, is that every revival is another inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And I have a theory that the gaps between revivals are getting closer and closer if you read church history. So it means that as we go towards the end, in the end, towards the end of the end, more of the end becomes apparent. Does that make sense to you? So it's a theology of the history of revivals. It's also the basis for understanding world missions. So what are we doing in world missions, planting churches and re reaching the lost. God wants his planet back, a new heaven and a new earth. He wants to rule this world on earth as it is in heaven. And we become the subversive agents of God bringing his government back to humanity. And all of humanity is in our crosshairs because that's what the nature of the kingdom of God is like. This is the basis for understanding the Christian life. So if the kingdom is an already not yet reality, and we are sons and daughters of the kingdom, what does that mean? We are already not yet people. We are as mysterious as the kingdom is. 
And so have you ever figured out that you're a bit of a contradiction? That you're sometimes full of victory for God? Other times you wonder if you're even saved? And you think, what am I? No, you're just a person in whom two ages are battling for supremacy within you. But the power of the coming age will increasingly beat up the powers of this age in you until the new you stands up inside of you and is all of you. But the struggle will always be there because we are born into this tension, eschatological tension. This is the framework for understanding healing, why it occurs and why it does not occur. Don't let people teach you all these teachings. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't repent, which fills people with guilt. Um, and of course, sometimes it may have something to do with it. But it's very simple. Why is it that when we pray for sick people, they can get healed? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Why is it that we pray for sick people and they don't get healed? The kingdom of God is not yet at hand. And there's no better explanation than that. So we must press into the healing ministry because Jesus commanded us to do it. He demonstrated this. But it's actually all part of the mystery of God breaking into history. Actually, it's not on us. It's on God. And what he calls us to do is be obedient and keep praying for the sick, but not get into all these analysis things which basically fills people with guilt and is pastorally very irresponsible. And then, this is the framework for understanding the witness of the church in the world. So I think you know there are these extremes. Some people call it kingdom now, that you know the Christians are going to take over Durban municipality, and the Messiah will come to Durban, and you know, this will be the best place in the world, and all of that. And you get these Christian political parties who believe they're going to bring Messiah. Uh, and there's a kind of idealism in that. Uh, only when Jesus comes will God actually put things right. But then you get the other extreme, which is defeatism. That we're not supposed to bring justice into this world or transform society because it's all going to burn one day. All we've got to do is get people saved and keep them saved until the rapture. No, the history of revivals is the history of nations being radically transformed for hundreds of years because the kingdom of God arrived. And so the only way to nuance that is the understanding of the kingdom. And then finally, this is the framework for understanding Christian stewardship of the environment. So again, some people say, well, why even try? Global warming is inevitable, it's terrible, let's just wait until the rapture. Defeat us. No, if the kingdom is restoring us to God's image that he gave Adam to rule the earth, and God is putting everything right, and that kingdom has arrived in the present, it means we've got to be green Christians. The greenest of all. And we must be more committed to the renewal of the environment because we are now on God's side who's taking his planet back. We're not on the enemy's side destroying it. So the theology of the environment ultimately comes out of the theology of the kingdom. Let's take a break. I should say that I discovered that Ross and I both started our Christian lives in the Assemblies of God. And so we have common roots. But all the guys that I knew lived about 100 years before the guys that he knew. So um, it's a common history, but from a different era. Um, yeah. So look, this is going to change gear quite a lot. And I'm hoping that if anything, it will just draw you into a journey of discovery. And especially for those who preach the word of God or lead the church, 
this is a pretty serious business, this kingdom of God thing. And so um, that's what this is all about. So when we say, how long has the church understood and grasped the mission and message of Jesus? The answer is only in the last 70 to 80 years. Now, in the long history of theology, that is just yesterday. Think of the Trinity, 3rd century, the Reformation, 16th century, the Great Revivals, 18th century, and so on. Um, something that is so new that it's only emerged in the last few decades is very new. And you could say very cutting edge. How come it's so new? So we can say that in the last few decades, Jesus has been rediscovered as a historical person in a way that is quite unprecedented. Of course, because Jesus is how we know God and how we define salvation and how we define the church and how we define our mission, anything that changes our vision of Jesus changes everything. Now, please don't think that you've not been saved or anything. You know, people have loved and believed in Jesus for centuries in a very valid way. But there's a fresh discovery of Jesus out of which this kingdom of God theology has come. And there are four factors that all happened from the Second World War onwards. And I'm going to be going through those four factors tonight. The first is the discovery and availability of the literature of Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism is the window of history in which Jesus lived. From when they came back from the exile and started rebuilding the temple to when the Romans destroyed it in AD 70. And that was the world in which Jesus came and preached. And until recently, we had the Old Testament, and then we had a vacuum, and we had the New Testament. And all of a sudden, in the last 50 to 70 years, a whole lot of Jewish literature of the time of Jesus has been discovered and made available and translated. So the most well-known are the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in 1948 from a Jewish community. But they, I'll go through the list of them just now. There's a whole lot of them. And the result is that for the first time in 2,000 years, we are able to read the Gospels in their historical context. Now, one of the first rules of interpreting anything is to interpret it in context. The church, you could say, has been reading the Gospels for 2,000 years in a historical vacuum. And all of a sudden, that vacuum has been filled. Second thing is that when all this literature became available, theologians went off in all sorts of extremes. And the one group basically said that Jesus only preached a future coming of the kingdom. The other group said Jesus only preached a present coming of the kingdom, and they fought with each other. And then somebody, two theologians called Kummel and Kuhlman, had a brilliant idea, and they realized Jesus meant both. What I've explained to you. It's like penny dropped. Can you believe it? Nobody had ever conceived of that for 2,000 years. Suddenly, wow, they, they understood it. Third thing that happened 
is a whole, can I use the word in Afrikaans, tunadra, between Jewish scholars and Christian scholars as a result of the reflection following the Holocaust. Now I'll go into that in a little while. But the whole Reformation has come under review as a result of the Jewish Holocaust. And Jewish biblical scholars and Christian biblical scholars are simultaneously discovering Jesus and Judaism of the first century in an unprecedented way. And so there's a whole lot of that that has come out of that. The fourth thing is that we have gone through a great philosophical shift from what is called modernism to postmodernism. And if you, you know, who are postmodernists? Well, really the millennial generation, the kids at university today would be more influenced by postmodernism, especially in the modern world. And these are very difficult and complicated ideas, but um, it's interesting, the key guy that almost expresses it was a, was a philosopher called Ludwig Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein was a philosopher in Vienna in Austria who was teaching a kind of atheistic philosophy before the Second World War. He went to the same high school as Hitler went to when Hitler was there. Then he happened, something happened to the war and he became part of the resistance and he became some sort of convert the next thing you meet him, he's a professor of linguistics at Cambridge University in England, and he's telling a completely different story. And he had to flee um, Germany because he was Jewish. His brother fled to, to America, and, but his family was kind of saved because they were at the same school as Hitler. And his sort of watershed thinking almost epitomizes this great shift from modernism to postmodernism. And that has come around to deeply influence the lenses that scholars wear when they study Jesus in history. And from a place where modernism was very antithetical to the Christian faith, the, the Enlightenment, the whole idea that we modern people, we know dead men don't rise, and so the whole of the New Testament is mythological, etc., um, has changed to people redefining the way history is written, great, more respect for the writings of the ancients, and a much better appreciation of the reliability of the Gospels, and an appreciation that Jewish scholars and Christian scholars are discovering at the same time. So these four factors have come together, and it's particularly biblical scholars who are studying what is called the historical Jesus. Who was Jesus in history? Using these new lenses. And it is out of that that this whole new thinking of the kingdom of God has come. And they, guys who write thick books, and they all say, it's about the kingdom of God. It's about the kingdom of God. And they explain how it has its context in the literature and social realities of Second Temple Judaism. So just a little bit to explain to you uh, how this works. Discovering the context, discovering the literature of Second Temple Judaism. There's a list of writings that, some of them were available earlier, like Philo and Josephus. Some of them, the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a whole, I've got two fat books, that fat, called the Sud Epigrapha, of Jewish writings from like the second century before Christ, 
century before Christ, the century of Christ, the first century after Christ. And it just fills in the whole world in which Jesus lived. And so when he said kingdom of God, it already had a meaning in that context. Um, you might have heard of the book of Enoch, very influential in the whole understanding of Daniel, son of man, and so on. And so today, if you go and study theology at university and you really want to be serious about understanding who Jesus was, you've got to read all that stuff to read the context. And, and the, you know, the, the debates Jesus was having with the Pharisees, all of a sudden now we've got the context. We know the different types of Pharisees, the different groups within Judaism, their different teachings, and how Jesus was in a way so Jewish and so radically different at the same time. That's all come out. And so all of this has situated Jesus and the Apostle Paul for the first time in history in, his, in their historical context. So it's like a light has been shone on Jesus in his historical context. Second thing is this growing dialogue between Jews and Christians. Now, I've read a whole lot of these Jewish scholars, and none of them have like, got converted so the one guy, I think, believed Jesus rose from the dead. But he can't bring himself to say that he was the Messiah. But he calls him the charismatic sage of Galilee. And they no longer see him as a false prophet and stuff. They see him as one of the greatest religious geniuses of all time, anointed with an unprecedented anointing of the Holy Spirit, but not the Messiah. I don't know how that logic works, but it's really interesting. So what produced this? Well... You know, millions of Jews were slaughtered by the Germans. Here's the embarrassing history. Luther wrote a tract called Concerning the Jews, in which he said that we must burn their synagogues and destroy their homes. And Hitler did everything Luther suggested. Now, Hitler did more, but he had Luther's teaching. And the Reformation starts with Luther. And See, Luther was fighting his private war with the Roman Catholic Church, indulgences, salvation through good works. He was preaching salvation by faith. And what he did was to assume in his mind that his enemies, the Catholics, were the same as Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees. And so he sort of worked backwards from um, his understanding of Pharisaic works righteousness uh, and the Catholic Church. And... He, is, he assumed that Orthodox European Judaism was the same as first century Pharisaism, and therefore the Pharisees were morally responsible for the death of Jesus, and we must burn their homes, they're bad people. And right through from Luther to the latest great theologians and New Testament scholars in Lutheranism, you have this anti-Semitic strain. And they talk disparagingly about Judaism of the time of Jesus as late Judaism. That is really not anything of any consequence. And so and then all of a sudden, this nation, with this theology, slaughters millions of Jews. And somebody's got to put up their hand and say, wait a bit. Was the Reformation all 100% Okay. Now, a lot of it, I, I love just about everything about the Reformation. The authority of Scripture, salvation by grace through faith, 
you know, all of that, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But there's something more about the Reformation. So what's happened is a lot of Christian scholars have gone through a sort of mea culpa. They're saying, look, we must admit we have things to be embarrassed about. We must be willing to face this. And so the Jews are saying, Jewish scholars are saying, well, fine, let's face it together. And then they've been saying, well, we don't actually think he was a, he was a, he was a false messiah anymore. We just think he was a great anointed guy. And it's amazing how some of them, as you read them interpreting Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, they are just seeing how it's, this is Judaism. This is first century Judaism, par excellence. Jesus is a Jew. Their boy, if you like. Not our boy, see? There's this whole thing that has happened. All right. Third thing is the shift from modernism to postmodernism. And this is a very big subject, which this book that I'm going to publish later on actually spends most of the time describing this because it's so current in our thinking. So modernism has this naive belief that we as moderns are objective and look at the facts in front of us and can objectively interpret them. And then if we are historians, we look at all the literature of the earlier centuries and we know that a whole of it is mythological, but with our modern minds, we discern the truth from the error, like brilliant journalists. And we actually read into it what we think is possible and not possible. The pendulum has gone right to the other extreme in what is called reductionist postmodernism. And what they say is there are no facts at all. They're only interpretations. Everything's got a spin. You heard of fake news? There's the news. And so you say you believe this, and I believe this. Well, who's to say you're right and I'm wrong, and I'm right or you're wrong? It's just different interpretations. So there's actually no hard reality out there. They are only opinions. And actually, the issue is who's giving the opinions and who's trying to control who with those opinions to get money out of them or dominate them or whatever. It's all politics. See? And the word for it is deconstructionism. Now, both of those are actually a little bit insane. Critical realism splits the difference and says we as humans are fallible None of us is totally objective. We're all wearing spectacles. But that doesn't mean there are no facts out there. And therefore there's no meaning and therefore there's no morality and there's no truth. No, it really is there. But we've got to be a little bit more nuanced about our claims of how well we grasp it. And so there's this balance between the two. Okay. I've summarized a massive story that has happened. And most disciplines today, whether they are history, sociology, philosophy, literature, theology, uh, journalism, the people that are sane actually are critical realists. They hold together. We really do have a realistic grasp of what is out there, but we must be critical of our assumptions about our objectivity in having what's a grasp of what's out there. And this has then changed the way history gets done. 
So the postmodern shift from naive modernist positivism, in other words, we are objective, we are moderns, which is a lie, to the opposite that nobody has any knowledge of the facts, there has come this splitting the difference called postmodern critical realism. And essentially, it is a shift in what is called epistemology. Epistemology is the theory of how do I know what I know. So when I look at um, the Witness newspaper tomorrow, how do I know that I can believe what's there? How do I know what I know? And is it maybe that I read it with such prejudice that I can't even grasp what's there? Or did the writer have such prejudice? All of these things, it's the theory of how we know what we know. And this has been the great shift that has taken place. And out of that has come a redefinition of all the disciplines, but particularly how history is done. So just put it very simply, if you believe that dead men don't rise, and we know that this whole world of the Gospels was just mythology, it's like you're wearing a welding helmet. Have any of you ever wore a welding helmet? You can't see anything except that bright, and you can look straight into the sun. But you're not going to see much in the room. If you have a more moderate prejudice, and you may be wearing dark spectacles, okay? So there are a lot of people who, scholars who say, well, yeah, we're not quite as bad as those modernists, but they also... Um, and so it all depends on what spectacles are, are you wearing, and when you do history, who sets the rules of how history is done? And therefore, when you're studying the history of Jesus, who sets the rules of how history is done? Now, we may say, well, why is this important? Surely for us, we just know the word of God is, is inspiration, and we believe it, and so we believe Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible says so because we believe the Bible. That's fine, but how do you make a bridge to the unbeliever and not escape into an evangelical ghetto that we believe in what we believe? See? And the whole claim of the incarnation is that God visited us, and there are witnesses. The New Testament writers are very strong that we can prove these things. And so if somebody comes along and, and can actually disprove the whole of the Gospels, our faith is a pretty bad place. So... This is an important, we can't have a naive believism. We've got to be debating with the tools. And so what these guys do as Christian scholars is they take off their believer hat and they put on a non-believer hat and they go and stand alongside the non-believer and they say, let's use all the rigorous tools of historical investigation with no assumptions of faith and let's investigate who Jesus was and let's see what we come up with. And they the guys who've done this hard work. And the result has been what is called the third quest for the historical Jesus. Now, this is basically historians trying to see who Jesus was using historical lenses. The first quest failed because they were modernists. The second quest failed because they were half-converted modernists. And the third quest is because they're now doing critical realism. Suddenly, Jesus appears in history. And the whole context of Jesus starts coming out. And this new theology of the kingdom of God has come out of this fresh discovery of Jesus in his historical context with the literature that's been discovered 
with the tunothering of the Jews and Christian scholars and with this new understanding of how history is done. And so out of that has come what is called Jesus research. So if you find out who, who are the guys writing this, what is it called? It's called Jesus research. Studying Jesus himself. Now, just a little bit to explain how these guys go about doing this. When you read the New Testament, you may not realize that in the New Testament, there are layers. And there are parts of the New Testament that are much earlier than others. And there are parts of the New Testament that are relying on earlier parts of the New Testament. And so a historian is saying, where am I getting close to the original coalface of the actual story of Jesus? And where am I getting later layers? And the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they have a lot of similarity. And what happens is that you find that Mark's Gospel reappears almost 100% of it in Matthew and Luke. And Luke tells us that when he wrote, he studied earlier witnesses. So most people believe that Mark wrote, obviously if Mark reappears almost totally in Matthew and Luke, what does that mean? Mark was earlier. Then there's a whole lot of stuff, chapter after chapter, paragraph that almost identical in Matthew and Luke that doesn't come from Mark, but appears in both Matthew and Luke. And so the Germans have the word source, queller, which just means it was a source. And so people say there must have been a written document that has now appeared in both Matthew and Luke that has since been lost. It's mostly the teaching of Jesus, by the way, and Mark has most of the activity of Jesus. And then there's a whole lot of ways of dating Matthew and Luke. And if Matthew and Luke were written, say, if Luke was written maybe AD 65, and Acts, sorry, AD 65, and Luke was written before Acts because it's the second volume, and Luke borrowed Q and Mark, what does that mean? You've got to push those documents back into the 50s of the first century, and Jesus rose in the 30s. And what you're doing in terms of history is you're pushing back eyewitness evidence so close to the original events that there is no time for myths and legends to develop because there are too many eyewitnesses that were current. So this is the kind of stuff that they do. And then what they do is they look at all the stories about Jesus. Oh, and by the way, the early church tells us that Mark was Peter's secretary and so what's in Mark's gospel? The preaching of Peter. And possibly Q comes out of an earlier version of Matthew written in Aramaic. So that's possibly the roadmap of how all of this happened. So what they do is they say, all right, how can we look at all the stories about Jesus and find the ones that we know are totally authentic? Remember, they're wearing the hat of a skeptical unbeliever. And then they build around that all the other stories of Jesus. And so they use historical criteria, quite sensible historical criteria. So the first one is if you find a text in the New Testament that is quite embarrassing, that nobody would have wanted to write, it's probably authentic. So for instance, you, you may not know that all the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Now it was a chauvinist society where women weren't supposed to be able to give a witness to anything. 
So how come all the Gospels tell us that the first witnesses were women? You know what it probably means? It probably means that's just the way it happened. Because they wouldn't have wanted to write that. They had to write that because that's what happened. Another criterion is the criterion of multiple attestation. So if the same words of Jesus are found in Paul and Mark and Q and Matthew and John multiple times, you've got a pretty strong multiple testimony. Other thing that's important is all of Paul's letters, just about, are the earliest part of the New Testament. They are written before Mark, before Luke, and before Acts. So Paul is the first. Corinthians was written within 25 years of the resurrection, where he lists all the witnesses. This is, this is very close to the original. I helped my father write his memoirs of the Second World War. He was a fighter pilot who escaped. And I typed out his recollection. And he met my mother in Switzerland, and they fell in love. And, of course, half of it was how they romanced each other and stuff like that. You know, they could remember every detail of what happened because they were world-shattering events. 25 years is very close in terms of historical recollection. Well, the New Testament is full of witnesses who are within 20 to 30 years of earth-shattering events that happened in the life of Jesus. Another thing is where you find a lot of the Palestinian environment. See, the Gospels are all written in Greek. Jesus spoke Aramaic. So when you find Aramaic popping out behind the Greek, it's probably pretty original. So you find Jesus saying, Abba. Abba, Father, that's Aramaic. So you back at the original Palestinian environment. Another criterion is causality. Causality goes like this. If you have an effect without a cause, you've got a problem. So a lot of theories, and all these liberal scholars, some of them are called the Jesus Seminar writers, who try to explain a Jesus that would never have got crucified. And the crucifixion is the one clear historical datum in the New Testament. So what these guys do is they study all these, this literature, and they put on lenses, and they write reams of books. I've read them. And the Jesus they come up with sounds awfully like a 21st century Californian theology professor who's very cool, who would never reject anybody, never judge anybody, never offend anybody, just the nicest guy who just talks about love all the time, no wrath or anything like that. And they paint this picture of Jesus. And then the problem is, well, that Jesus would never have been crucified. The Jesus that was crucified upset everybody very badly. So if you have a picture of Jesus that doesn't explain how radical he was and how upsetting he was, you have an effect without a cause. Or that suddenly this early church, all of them are willing to be martyred for the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. How do you explain this belief in the resurrection of the dead unless you've got a cause for it? And so these are the sort of arguments they go through. Then there's this whole thing of oral history. See, we are, we are people that read literature. But you know today that Islamic people read the Quran and they memorize it, don't they, from little kids. And they can memorize the whole of the Quran like orally. 
Well, ancient Near Eastern societies were oral societies where in their villages they would tell stories from generation to generation. One guy called Bailey went and lived in Syria in Aramaic-speaking villages. They still speak Aramaic. And he studied how they pass on authoritative stories of the tribe from generation to generation. And he discovered that they can contain over many reiterations a very accurate oral tradition that is almost as good as having it written down. And you can see in the Gospels the way Jesus teaches and the way they write the stories, it comes from this Aramaic type of oral tradition, which now we realize is much more accurate than we thought before. And then um, Luke shows in his prologue and his whole method of writing history that he was trained in the classical methods of writing history of Greco-Roman Roman historians. And they had very definite norms and things like that. And then you find that if you examine, because Mark turns up in Matthew and Mark turns turn up in Luke, and you say, how did Matthew tweak what Mark originally wrote and how did Luke tweak it? You'll find they are very conservative in their editorial activity, showing great respect for what they received. So using all of these criteria, now these guys are saying, look, actually, including Jewish scholars, the New Testament is a pretty credible witness. And added to that, they now have the context. And out of that, they have the um, rediscovery of the kingdom of God. So could we have a blood circulation break? Could you stand up, turn around, hug somebody, two minutes just to break the concentration, and I'm going to change gear into the second part of the second session. So I'm shifting gears from history to theology now. I've been explaining the history of where Jesus, where kingdom theology has come from, the historical context, the way people do history and stuff. Now what we're saying is all these guys that are doing all of this have basically rediscovered Jesus. And when you rediscover Jesus, everything changes. So I've been very influenced by John Wimber. And he said to his wife, Carol, he said, Carol, when you get the kingdom of God, you realize that all the books have to be rewritten. Everything has to be reviewed. And that is actually what has happened since then. So there is a thing that is happening about the kingdom of God in the Christian world today that some of those involved in it say that when later history looks back, they will see it as great a shift as the Reformation. Now, that's quite a radical claim. So I've called it the Kingdom Reformation. The book I'm going to bring out is going to be called The Kingdom Reformation. It's a kind of new reformation, which the reformers should be delighted with because they said we must never stop reforming. We must keep on reforming. So he has a radical claim. Is it possible that the whole church has only really come to understand Jesus and his mission and message of the kingdom of God for the first time in two millennia? That is quite a radical claim. And one of the persons, one of the people who defends this very vigorously is a guy called N.T. Wright, academically, or Tom Wright. Now, he's an Anglican, evangelical, charismatic bishop in England who hangs around quite a lot with new wine. 
He's taught at Oxford and Cambridge and Edinburgh. And of all those people I know today, pastors or theologians or Bible teachers who are really into the kingdom of God, he is more read than anybody else. Pity they don't read me so much, but anyway. Um, N.T. Wright is, is the go-to guy. And he is viewed as the leader of this group of scholars called the Third Quest for the Historical Jesus. So I, will re- you know, I would recommend some of his books to you because the great thing about him is he's, he writes under N.T. Wright, big fat volumes, and then he summarizes them in small paperbacks under Tom Wright. And you can get the takeaway version uh, from him. All right. So here's some of the things he says. His books are called Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of Jesus, Mission of the Church. Notice the word rethinking. Simply Jesus, a new vision of who he was, what he did, and why he matters. See, this is very recent, 2011. By the way, I'll give you this, this PowerPoint. You don't have to worry about writing it down. He, he's given a new kingdom translation of the New Testament. The challenge of Jesus, rediscovering who Jesus was and is. How God became king, the forgotten story of the Gospels. We've just not been reading the Gospels correctly, he says. And so he really says that for a very long time, the church has not been reading the Gospels the way they were intended to be read. We just haven't been getting it. And he talks about what he calls an empty cloak Jesus. That the picture of Jesus that has emerged is like this, this cloak you can see, but if you opened it up, there would be nobody inside. Or he talks about a comma. I'll come back to that later on. And he says, basically, since the Reformation... We've been reading the Bible as Protestants through Pauline lenses. Most preachers start with Paul, they read his letters, and then put on those spectacles and read the Gospels. Now we can't do that. We read the Gospels and we rediscover the historical Jesus and his mission and message of the kingdom. Then we put on those spectacles and we read Paul's letters. And actually Paul glows in the dark, he's terrific. But now you're understanding him in context. And Jesus is the founder of Christianity, not Paul. Paul is his faithful servant. And he says the creeds are equally problematic than putting on Pauline spectacles because he says the creeds go from the incarnation to the cross with nothing but a comma in between, leaving out his kingdom inaugurating work. Now, I'm going to come to that in detail later. But when you're saying that the creeds have to be reviewed, so great is the rediscovery of Jesus, you're getting getting quite radical. Now, don't worry. Neither Wright nor me or anybody else wants to throw out any of this. We're just actually saying most of the problem is what is missing. The the clarity, the the angle, the, the lens has just not been the right lens. He says the coming of the kingdom is conspicuously absent from the creeds the churches of the Reformation, and the tradition of the evangelical revivalist right across the Western tradition. Now, there, is a whole, there are a whole lot of guys out there, mostly hyper-Calvinists, who are very threatened by this. They think that Reformation in its essence is being attacked. And it's not the case. 
and, and Wright actually is an Anglican bishop who believes in the Trinity and believes in author, he believes it all. But he's just saying, hey guys, there's just so much missing in all of this. He says that even the way the divinity of Christ has been grounded is problematic. Using creedal lenses and his miracles as proof of his divinity or a self-conscious claim of divinity. See, in the creeds, it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Jesus, his only begotten Son, who is very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, etc., etc. Homoousios, all of that. It's Greek, philosophical, and Latin legal language. And people think Jesus walked around Palestine saying, very God of very God of very, oh, one substance to the, with the Father. Jesus didn't walk around thinking like that at all. He was a Jewish prophet of the kingdom. But what you find in the New Testament is the whole mission of Jesus is that the long-awaited return of the glory of God to fill the temple is the ministry of Jesus, which is a claim to divinity that is just as clear as the way they grounded the divinity of Jesus through the later creeds, but it's couched in the historical context of Jesus, not some later Greek Concepts from hundreds of years after the time of Jesus. And he says, failure to understand the central kingdom message of the Gospels is behind centuries of atonement theology since Anselm, Luther, Calvin, and the rest. Now, when you start touching the meaning of the death of Jesus, people get very nervous. And I'm busy right now, part of an international think tank, to look into the implications of kingdom theology for the doctrine of the atonement. So, Everything comes under review. So it is out of this fresh discovery of Jesus that we are now putting on new lenses and re-looking literally at everything that has gone before. And so kingdom theology has arisen out of a post-Jesus research, post-Jesus rediscovery event in history. It is very new departure in the history of the Christian church. And um, they are different. If you go to do university studies in the New Testament today, you will meet the good, the bad, and the ugly. You will meet scholars who are mostly modernists, who read the Greco-Roman background of Jesus, and they put Jesus into that background. So they say he was like a cynic sage philosopher. So, and they're the kind of guys who come up with a Jesus who would never have got crucified either because a sage philosopher, who would crucify him? Then you get those who say, no, wait a bit. We can't just read Jesus through the lens of the Greco-Roman world. We've got to read him through the lens of the literature of his time. And so they place Jesus in his historical context, but they haven't made the shift to postmodernism. They're still basically modernists. They're wearing welding helmets. And it's a little bit better. Man, no, they're, they're wearing dark spectacles. Not as, not as bad, but not so good. Then you get this group of people that N.T. Wright is really the leader of. And they say we've got to start with Jesus in his historical context, the literature of Second Temple Judaism. And as historians, we must have postmodern lenses of critical realism so we can have a better appreciation of the historicity of the Gospels and then we relook at Jesus. And it's these guys that are not everybody. They may be 
a hundred scholars in the world today, but some of the best. And by the way, they're ecumenical. They're Anglicans, Methodists, uh, vineyard guys, uh, independents. It's, it's, it's wide, but it's a select group that have a passion for this. And it is out of this that there is a new sort of tradition emerging, and out of that is the genesis of recent kingdom theology. So if you want to really get into this, uh, that's where it comes from. All right. So that leads us to say, what is the nature of this theology? In the previous session, I gave you a simple story-like way of describing it. But now we're going a little bit, we're waxing a little bit more giraffe-like, all right? So first of all, earlier kingdom theology emerged out of the first implications of discovering the literature of Second Temple Judaism. And Ladd and Kuhlman and these guys were the first fresh discovery. That was just after the Second World War, 1945, 1950, that era. Then more recent kingdom theology that Wright and Craig Keener and James Dunn and all of these guys are writing has come out of the most fresh discoveries of the critical realist third quest. And if you wanted to boil down this whole picture of Jesus, it would be in this phrase, enacted, inaugurated eschatology, which I explained to you. The mystery, kingdom is here, it's, not, it's near, it's delayed future, all of that is basically the essence of this new theology of the kingdom. And key to it is that Jesus didn't only announce and demonstrate the kingdom, but he viewed his death and resurrection as the climax of his enactment of the kingdom. Now, a lot of theology until recently has had a total divide between the passion narrative and the gospels. They haven't been able to figure out how the ministry of Jesus with signs and wonders is linked to the atonement and the death of Jesus. But wearing kingdom lenses, you realize the whole thing is one story. And we'll come to that because it has its influence on how we understand the atonement. And so this rediscovered Jesus of the post-quest Jesus is where this theology has come from. And therefore, it represents a completely new departure in the history of theology. This is a reformation. This is a big shake-up happening in the global church. And some, some fear it, and some love it, and there's controversy around it, and I think the Holy Spirit's just pouring himself out on it. See? So, it's quite a big deal. So therefore, we can say a whole lot of things about the nature of this theology. It is not classical Protestant theology. We, we appreciate a lot that comes from Protestantism. We don't appreciate the Holocaust tradition, if you like. And we don't wear Pauline lenses and read the Gospels. We read the Gospels, and then we read Paul. We can never go back because we rediscovered Jesus. It is not conservative evangelical theology. Most of the evangelical church in the world today is, in, is called conservative evangelical, like mainline Baptists, theological colleges. And you'll find wherever you have that theology where the kingdom hasn't gone, you have two things, cessationism and dispensationalism. Cessationism is the belief that miracles ceased after the apostolic era 
And anybody claiming miracles today must be deceived because that was a different dispensation and so on. And that's, Calvin actually started that idea. But as we learned, the kingdom of God is a reality where we are in the last days, moving towards the last days until we get to the last day. And so the whole of church history is the era of signs and wonders. And the history of revivals proves that. And there are a whole lot of other things about typical evangelical theology that a lot of them don't quite get this whole kingdom of God approach. It is not Pentecostal theology either. And once again, those who are into the kingdom love all sorts of things about the Pentecostals. The Pentecostals, by the way, defeated the cessationists for us. Because instead of doing theology, they just did miracles. And it's difficult to have a theology that miracles ceased when you see too many of them happening. So we've got to thank the Pentecostals for that. And, and the Pentecostals helped us say, no, you can't say there are no gifts of the Spirit today because, look, we're operating in gifts of the Spirit. See, So they did a great thing. But actually, Pentecostalism starts with the book of Acts. And that's, that's the lens that they wear. And so there are lots of things about Pentecostalism that come over into the kingdom of God approach, but a lot of it doesn't have the same kingdom of God lens. It is an essentially anti-Gnostic theology. Now, this is a whole rabbit trail, but Gnosticism is a doctrine that separates the spirit from the body and is into spirituality that is not in the body. Well, what about the resurrection of Jesus in the body? That's very empowering of the spirit. So there's a whole lot of things about that. And the litmus test of if you are getting back to the original Jesus, the mission and message of Jesus, is announcement and demonstration. This can never just be a theoretical teaching. We study the Bible to study the Bible to study the Bible to study the Bible. No, no, no. We study the Bible to do it, to go and heal the sick and raise the dead. And unless there's the, the fact that the, the, demonstra- the, the proclamation of the kingdom leads to the demonstration of the kingdom, you haven't understood the kingdom. It is inherently an activist type of theology. And it always has the big picture of all those great promises of the prophets that when the kingdom comes, God is going to renew all of creation. So it can never be a little small uh, teaching. The next thing that's important to say is every generation has a lens they wear with which they read the Bible called a hermeneutical key. Hermeneutics is just the theory of how we interpret what we interpret. The lenses we wear. And if Jesus is the center of scripture, and if his main mission and message was the kingdom of God, surely that must be the primary key we put into the Bible to unlock it. And that's what's coming out now. So, what these guys are, are discovering, because they read Jesus' debates with the Pharisees in the context of all the literature of Judaism at the time, and they realize that Jesus was a masterful interpreter of the Torah, saturated in understanding of the Torah. And in all of his debates with the Jewish theologians, he actually out-theologized them because he knew the scriptures so well. And so, people used to say, oh, Paul's the guy who really came up with what the gospel is. Or John came up with the gospel. No, 
Jesus came up with what the gospel is. The gospel is the time has fulfilled the kingdom of heaven as it had. That's the gospel. And it comes from Jesus. And what is really the most central thing about the whole coming of the kingdom is the resurrection of Jesus. So how come a monotheistic group who, could, who, who would think it blasphemy for a human being to be called God, all of a sudden, all of them believe Jesus was God with us. There's only one possible explanation, that Jesus rose from the dead. And that is also the key. Everything revolves around the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So his teaching and his death and resurrection must be the key for unlocking everything. It must unlock, first of all, the expectations of Second Temple Judaism. Because it was into those expectations he came announcing their fulfillment. It must unlock the meaning of the Old Testament. So now there's a whole rereading of the Old Testament. Books and books are being written about the Mosaic Covenant, about the Davidic monarchy, etc. All of a sudden they're seeing it through kingdom of God lenses. The creation narrative is an enthronement narrative. And the, the Garden of Eden is a temple that's represented in the tabernacle, a cosmic temple. And the Holy of Holies in the Garden of Eden is the same as the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and there's this whole rediscovery of the Old Testament through kingdom of God lenses. It must unlock the meaning of the New Testament, because every New Testament writer is taking as his starting point this paradigm of Jesus' mission and message of the kingdom. And so this is not a reformational hermeneutical key. The Reformation's key to the scriptures was justification through faith and the sovereignty of God and covenant theology. Now that's all terrific. But Jesus' message wasn't primarily justification through faith. It was the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore be justified by faith. And for instance, the covenants. To have a theology of covenants without the kingdom is to have a whole lot of carts without a horse to tow it. Because the covenant is the result of the arrival of the kingdom. The covenant is the expression of the relationship between Lord and vassal that came about because the kingdom came. So the whole theology of covenants is great, but it needs to now be put back into its original context. The kingdom creates the covenant. So the whole of the approach of the Reformation is being reviewed. Then we come to the creeds. So we've sort of said, let's re review the Reformation. What about reviewing the creeds? And of course, you know, what binds the whole church together around the world is we all confess the same creed. Can you confess the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was made man, crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead and buried, raised on the third day, ascended into heaven and will return to judge the living and the dead. I'm an Anglican. I grew up confessing that at Michael House week after week, and I was so bored with it, but anyway, until I got saved. So when you start looking at that again, this is, this is quite radical. So what Wright says is the creeds go through these points, the pre-existence of Jesus, his incarnation, his virgin birth, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return, 
And there is nothing said about the kingdom of God. Nothing said about the central proclamation and demonstration of Jesus. It's just not there. So if you had a diagram of the creed, it sort of goes like this. Pre-existence, incarnation, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, and return, all right? So his pre-existence, very God of very God, who for us and for our salvation became man, jumps, crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead and buried, raised on the third day, ascended into heaven, and returned to judge the living and the dead, and Wright says, all you have in between is a comma. The whole ministry of Jesus is just a comma. The empty cloak Jesus. That can't be good theology. See? So no, we don't want to kick out all the, the rest of it. We've got to just put it back where it came from in the New Testament context. So if you look at the creed, you'll find that every part of the creed is couched in the language of eschatology or of the end of this age and the beginning of the next age or the next age breaking into this age. So the infancy narratives, the outpouring of prophecy and signs and wonders is the dawning of the new age. That's actually what it says, what it's called in the, in the Gospel of Luke. Mark makes it very plain that the real meaning of the cross for Jesus is the clash of the kingdoms between the powers of God's reign and the powers of darkness that were occurring in his signs and wonders and his clashes with the demons and his clashes with the Pharisees climaxed in the crucifixion. And in the resurrection, he defeated the powers of darkness. And therefore, the kingdom has been vindicated and has come through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' understanding of his death and resurrection was in the context of the end of the world clash of spiritual warfare like in the Exodus event, like in the plagues. Now, whatever else we say about the, the death of Jesus is fine, but that's the original context. It's a kingdom of God context. The resurrection, supremely the window of what the future world looks like. Eschatology happening in front of our eyes. Pentecost, the outpouring of the powers of the coming age. Eschatology happening in front of our eyes. So what we've got to say is that the creeds are fine, but where it came from has been lost. And it's got into the sort of Greek philosophical language, but actually in the time of Jesus, it was a Jewish prophetic way of understanding what God was doing in Jesus. Then Protestantism, we've already looked at the problem of the Holocaust and Luther's influence on the Holocaust. And we've just looked at how in the whole Western tradition, the ministry of Jesus is just a comma in between. But there are a few other things. From the Reformation, one theory of the atonement has been preached in evangelical churches. And that is what is called penal substitution. That God's wrath fell on Jesus and God judged Jesus and therefore we can be acquitted and we are saved from the wrath of God. He became our substitute and took the penalty or the wrath of God. You find that in Romans 3, for instance. And for me, that's not a problem because I see Paul teaching that. And I see Paul teaching that because he's taking a Jewish gospel and interpreting it into a Greco-Roman environment that was very full of law and that sort of framework. But there's a guy called Aulain who wrote this book called Christus Victor. And he pointed out that up until the Reformation, that was not the predominant view of the atonement. 
the predominant view of the atonement was the clash of the kingdoms and the spiritual warfare that happened and the resurrection as the triumph over the powers of darkness, the power of the devil, the power of sin, and the power of death. So if the classic view of the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus for the first 1,600 years of the church got lost, which is very much the kingdom of God approach, and then a reduction of the meaning of the atonement happens from the Reformation, we don't want to throw out the baby of the bathwater, but we've got to put this whole thing back into context and bring the kingdom of God angle back into the atonement. The other thing is, if you make the whole gospel about me, why did Jesus come? Jesus came to die on the cross so that I can have my sins forgiven, so that I don't have to go to hell, that I can go to heaven. Me, 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 me. Now, that's all true. I believe every word of that. But you see, it's, it's a very sad reduction. Actually, God didn't come to just have my sins forgiven. He came to get his planet back and the whole of humanity back. And when I have my sins forgiven, I change sides from the powers of darkness to the power of God, and I start fighting the same war that Jesus began to fight. It's a whole different view of the, of the gospel. I, I won't go into the filioque clause. that will just take too, too much time. So we're coming towards the end. Kingdom theology creates the most comprehensive picture of the understanding of the whole of Scripture from Genesis to the end of Revelation. And it resists any form of reductionism into it's only the gospel, it's only my sins forgiven. No, it's actually my sins forgiven and my body healed and my involvement in ecology and my involvement in justice. See, it's not something that you can, I, I like to think of the kingdom of God as a gigantic, wonderful chocolate cake that God put on the table in front of us and said, eat the whole thing. And then we cut a little slice and we eat and we say, I've got the gospel. God said, no, you haven't. You haven't even eaten a tenth of it. It's, it's a big understanding of the gospel the kingdom of God. So Jesus announces the kingdom as the fulfillment of prior expectation coming out of Isaiah. Coming out of Isaiah is the sins will be forgiven, every form of bondage will be liberated, every form of sickness will be healed, death will be conquered, dictators will be overthrown, justice will prevail, ecology will be restored, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, all of that is the kingdom of God. And Jesus said all of that is now arriving in me. And so if we are into the kingdom, we are into that. We're not into one little piece of it. Key to this expectation is the grand panorama of Isaiah's vision. It follows that physical healing, the forgiveness of sins, the reversal of wealth versus poverty, the establishment of justice for the oppressed, and the renewal of creation and the environment all feature in what is breaking into history in the coming of the kingdom. The whole chocolate cake, if you like. Personal salvation is the doorway into this new age of the kingdom, after which we become participants in God's plan to restore creation and redeem humanity. It's not about me, it's about God's great plan that I become part of. This comprehensive sense of mission of the kingdom must therefore include personal evangelism, identity transformation, the ministry of healing, signs and wonders, 
the confrontation of injustice and the stewardship of the environment. And if that's not our agenda, we ain't got the kingdom. And when we get the kingdom, we see all of that is our mission and our agenda. And so, the olive tree, may you sprout and grow and may your branches bring the kingdom of God to Durban and beyond the whole of the kingdom of God. Thank you for your patience in a lot of detail. I've, I've exhausted you, but I hope you sleep well.